This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for the World in Time podcast has been provided by Lizette Prince through the EJMP Fund for Philanthropy. Today, I'm talking to Mark Kurlansky about his new book, Paper. Mark, you've written best-selling books about the history of the codfish and the oyster. Why now paper, paper making, and printing? And why do you begin with a prologue talking about what you call the, the technological fallacy? Well, it's because I kind of went through an evolution, an intellectual evolution, working on this book, which is my 29th book. And uh, I don't think I've ever written a book in which I have uh, so changed my thinking as, as I did on this book. And originally, I thought, well, this would be a good time to write a book about paper because, you know, the, the problem with history books is that a book needs a beginning, a middle, and an end. And history doesn't have any beginnings or ends. It just flows. So yes. you never know where to start or where to stop. I know. And uh, I thought, well, here's this uh, story paper. It, it has a beginning when Kai Lun, every kid in China learns how Kai Lun and the eunuch in the Han court in the first century China invented paper. And it, it, it has an end because now paper is dying. This is This is where I started. And... I fairly quickly came to understand that both of those are wrong, <laughs> that archaeologists went to China 100 years ago and found pieces of paper that were 100 and 200 years before the birth of Kai Lun, which, you know, leaves the question, why is Kai Lun celebrated? He's really celebrated. I mean, his picture is in people's homes and on walls, and he's one of the papers, uh, Chinese consider that they have made four great inventions, and paper is is one of them. Well, what are the other three? Gunpowder, compass, and printing. All right. I also came to realize, particularly when talking to people in the computer field, the paper wasn't dying out at all. I mean, I also learned this from my own field, I mean, in publishing. We're publishing more books these days than ever. Absolutely. And there were, you know, there were a few years there where people talked about e-books taking over. And they, you know, my agent used to used to say, well, you know, e-book sales increased 100% last year. You know, if two years ago they sold one and then last year they sold two, that's a 100% increase. Yeah, right. yeah. And they just got to a certain level and they, 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 they leveled off because people like to read books. Some people like to read books. Some people like to read some books in hard book and some books in electronic. And I came to understand, I started thinking about history, and it's really very unusual for a new invention to appear and kill off something else. That rarely happens. It usually just creates an alternative. Now, it may over a thousand years go in that direction, but hell, uh, the, the, the candle business is a multi-billion dollar business still. Yeah. And um, remember when uh, television was going to be the end of radio? I do. And, it, it, it was and, not. Right. And, and, you know, vinyl record sales are going up and up. Yeah. And the technology creates an alternative, another way of doing things, but it does not 
wipe out the old way. Parchment, who, which was a predecessor to paper, is still used. And there was this... You, you make the point that technology follows the need of the society. It, it, it's not something that comes out of nowhere and shifts society into a new direction. Yeah, this is what in the book I call the technological fallacy. The technological fallacy is the idea that technology changes society. It just doesn't work that way. Society changes for all sorts of cultural, economic, uh, all kinds of reasons. And as it changes, it calls up technology to service those changes, which is why inventions rarely appear in isolation. I mean, when Gutenberg was working on the uh, movable type printing press, so were a bunch of other people. A whole bunch of people were working on telephones when Alexander Graham Bell was. Lots of light bulb people besides Thomas Edison. You also make the point that paper, like printing, like the written language itself, they developed to facilitate the expansion of business. It developed... um, for the expansion of business, but also the the growth of literacy, religion, some religions, and it emerged to answer a, a, a need because the things that were being written on before paper were not as practical. What were some of those things? Well, papyrus, which really only works well in a very dry climate, and parchment, which is animal skin, which is, you know— was fine in Europe when they, you know, had very few books, but you, you have to kill 150 animals to make a book. Well, let, 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 let's take the story in, in chronological se- sequence. So we begin with the Chinese. Yeah, okay, so the Chinese— And what, what are they writing on before paper? I mean, they're writing on what? Well, first on, on stone and on tortoise shells and then on uh, bamboo and on silk and— All of these things had drawbacks because they were using writing more and more. The Chinese, you could say that the Chinese are infatuated with their writing. (laughs) You know, they they skipped an important step in development. In other civilizations, they they had pictographs and symbols, and then they went to a, a, a phonetic alphabet. You know, in our case, like 27 Characters, But the Chinese just never stopped inventing new symbols. You know, they have over 200,000 of them and they love them. And, and, you know, the brush strokes by which they're done is is an important art form. Calligraphy was always very much appreciated. Also, watercolor, which, you know, didn't come to the West till people like Turner, but it was the fundamental art in China. And that goes well on paper. Yeah, it was originally on silk, and yeah, you know, yeah. they, they just needed something better, something um, more affordable, easier to produce. How did they discover it? paper? I mean, it comes down to cellulose, right? Yeah, I think paper is a really kind of an unlikely invention. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, cellulose fibers, but we're talking about you know, in the case of the Chinese, you know, almost two thousand years before. People knew cellulose existed. Right. It's it's actually a fiber that's in most organic things, you know, most plants. And so you could make paper from sugarcane or grass or bamboo or trees or tree bark or... And what, what were the Chinese making out of in, let's say, the second century B.C.? A lot of it was mulberry bark. The thing is that you had to 
you had to take this material, whatever it was, and you you just had to beat it until there was nothing but fiber. And then you have only about a 2% solution fiber in water so that it looks like clear water. And you pour this over a screen, and the fibers will just randomly interweave, and it will dry into a sheet that you can use for writing. I just don't know how anybody invented that. <laughs> I, can't, I can't either. Um, see, I think that Kai Lun, the famous inventor of paper, I think he did something like what most inventors, you know, most of the people we celebrate as inventors didn't invent the thing. Right. They just figured out how to make it work commercially. Right. You know, Robert Fulton didn't in invent the steamboat, and Thomas Edison didn't invent the light bulb, and Stephen Jobs didn't invent anything. And, yeah, you right. know, yeah. It's the, it's the guy who figures out how to make this really useful and commercially viable that we remember. And that's probably who Kai Lun was, because, you know, although they have found these earlier pieces of paper, after Kai Lun, you see lots of paper. It's being used much more. The story, as you tell it in the book, is a story that moves from east to west. So we pick it up in, in China, and now then how does paper come into the Arab world? Into Well, yeah. no, first of all— Well, first in, in e e East Asia, yeah. because uh, so, some countries—I mean, China was a huge influence, especially in Korea and then Japan, and these countries— basically adopted Chinese culture and Chinese writing, which they have since changed in the case of Korea, simplified. But they originally had Chinese characters and were doing the things that the Chinese were doing, the, the watercolors, the calligraphy, government records, accounting, all these things that made them need better writing material were learned by Korea and Japan. And so Korea and Japan started making paper also. But, and and uh, somewhat in uh, Southeast Asia and then in India. But paper was largely an East Asian thing for many centuries. And the rest of the world didn't even know about it. I mean, the Greeks and Romans are using what? Papyrus. Papyrus, yeah. right. And then parch parchment came along yeah. also because, of, because the Egyptians had a monopoly on apparently the Nile Delta is the only place where those reeds grow really thick to make you mean good, the papyrus reed yeah to, to make good writing material and and so they had a monopoly and so they as always happens when somebody has a monopoly they overcharged for it and that's why parchment was invented but uh, there there wasn't really any need for paper for a long time. Why do the Arabs pick up, or Islam pick up the need in, in let's say, the 7th, 8th, ninth century? Right. Because they developed a highly literate society where there were many more people writing and reading than there had been and then that there were in other civilizations. And they uh, became very involved with mathematics and architecture and science and we, uh, we forget that today i mean we, i mean we tend to look at the arabs as some primitive right people and, and in 800 the library in baghdad is the center of the world 
Yeah, they were. They, they had uh, libraries in the Arab world with uh, several hundred thousand books. You know, when the Vatican decided to have the definitive library of Christianity, they had 500 books. And, you know, they had books on everything, including, you know, fiction, a lot of poetry. They even had cookbooks. Uh, great cookbooks. So they needed a better writing material. So there's this myth about how they picked it up from the Chinese. There was this war in Samarkand, and there were Chinese prisoners, and the prisoners taught them. It's, it's one of many complete fabrications in paper history. But um, earlier, even earlier than that war, in, you know, in 600, 500, they started, they had trade with the Silk Route and the, with the Chinese, and they started learning about paper, and as they developed this tremendously literate world, they wanted paper, and they started making it, and they made it. And, of course, they developed this huge empire, you know, from where they started in Saudi Arabia, and then they were in the Tigris and Euphrates and Baghdad, and they took over Egypt, they took over North Africa, Southern Spain. Southern Spain. They they had this empire from almost the beginnings of Asia to the Atlantic, uh, you know, from the Pyrenees to the Sahara, this this huge area. And they all used paper, and they had paper mills everywhere. Is a paper mill a complicated thing to make? Uh, it is somewhat. It's, it's, it's not that easy. Yeah. Uh, you, need, um, you need some running water. You need a lot of water. And it has to be clean water and water that doesn't have iron or certain elements in it that'll make the paper funny colored. And you need the water for making the paper, but also it was the source of power, water wheels. And, and, and the process comes down to stamping either reeds or pulp or wood or bark or rags. Well, in, in the Arab world, it became almost entirely rags and um, mainly cotton and linen. Yeah, I mean, you had to beat them for a really long time, and uh, you didn't want to live near a paper mill because these <laughs> things were pounding uh, 24 hours a day. And also they used things to try to break down the rags like urine, and, and so mills didn't smell good. <laughs> How does the paper and when does paper come into Europe, into Italy? I mean, why are the Europeans so slow to pick up on the uses of paper? Well, they were slow to pick up on it. And, and, you know, they knew about it because the Arabs were constantly trying to sell it to them. But they weren't buying very much because they didn't need it. You know, they weren't they weren't doing a lot of books. You know, the books they were doing were in Latin. So we we think about these books now and we think of this Latin reading society, but in fact, nobody could read Latin except a few monks. So these were these were books that were only for a few people and in some, you know, monasteries and uh, uh, very few books, very few readers. And when you when you wanted a book, you know, the books were uh, royalty had books, uh, but most monarchs like Charlemagne couldn't read, but they would they would have a book in the palace as a as an art object. You know, and they were beautiful and they were hand painted and, and, and really beautiful on parchment. You know, they could take years to make, but you know, the, the, there wasn't much demand, so it was fine. 
Right. You know, and all, all that all that worked quite well. What did they need paper for? And, you know, they would go, travelers uh, would go to um, Spain, Muslim Spain, and, you know, they'd see all this paper. And yeah, there, was, there was an element of anti-Semitism to this, too. You know, there's something that Arabs and Jews did. Yeah. You know, Christians didn't do it. <laughs> Ar- Ar- Arabs and Jews wrote on old clothes, and it was disgusting. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they wrote about this, these disgusting people down there, and they would beat old clothes and write on it instead of writing on an animal like we do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right, so how does it come into the Renaissance? Suddenly the... The Renaissance develops a, a need and a use for paper? Yeah, you know, people, they, they started developing a middle class and a merchant class. They started uh, accounting. There was no accounting in Europe. The Arabs did accounting, Europeans didn't. And they started learning Arab accounting. First, they had to learn Arab mathematics, which for a long time they couldn't quite figure out because they couldn't grasp the concept of zero. Right. And you really need zero <laughs> to do mathematics. Eventually, uh, they did, and eventually they adopted Arab numerals, which the Arabs had adopted from uh, the Indians, Hindu-Arab numbers. You know, if you think about doing even the simplest mathematics, like multiplication with Roman numerals, you can see what an obstacle to mathematics that system was. So they they started getting uh, mathematics and accounting, and they started learning um, the Arab sciences. And, and of course, as, you know, as literacy expands, so does literature, and people started reading more. And um, uh, one of the sort of underlying themes of Don Quixote— is, I mean, Cervantes, who is an avid reader, I mean, part of his irony in this book is that it's the story of a man who is just an absolute fool. And what's wrong with him? He's always reading books. Uh, and, yeah. and at one point, a priest said, you know, we, we can help him. We can, we'll go to his home and we'll burn all his books and then he'll stop this and he'll be better off. Uh, uh, and what Cervantes was, was satirizing was it was an age in which the old order was being driven out by literacy. And, of course, that literacy needed paper. All right. We skip, skip then to the 16th century, the 1500s, which you say is a— great century of the blossoming of literacy and it's it's not only Martin Luther and Durer but it's also Cervantes, Montaigne, Shakespeare but it's also the Protestant Reformation Right, but before we get to that let's get to art because okay. you know, paper, part of this whole evolution in society made artists start thinking that it would be nice if other people had their artwork other than, you know, the church and the monarchs. There was no affordable art. And because paper came to Italy and Germany, those were the two first places, they could do affordable art on paper, like Durer's woodcuts and and Da Vinci's drawings. And, and, you know, in the Italian Renaissance, drawing became an art form. It had never been an art form before. Da Vinci left 15 paintings, some of them unfinished, and 4,000 drawings on paper. Something similar about Rembrandt, too. Explain that. He was a bit of a paper aficionado. Artists were in those days. You know, you'd you'd look around for the paper that worked best for what you were doing. And the Dutch had, uh, for more than a century, 
an exclusive contract to trade with Japan. So they're the only ones trading with Japan. In fact, the only ones in Europe trading with Asia. Now, you know, nobody in Europe had any idea that Asians made paper, let alone invented it. They thought it was invented in Italy. Europeans thought everything was invented in Italy. Right. <laughs> and, and one day a ship went into Amsterdam and it had this, this, uh, this paper from Japan, this handmade, all paper was handmade then, but, you know, to this day, handmade Japanese paper is just the artist's dream. Right. And he, he, you know, he got this paper, he started working on this paper, it changed, it improved his drawings and his, and particularly his etchings. There's that, that paper that they do has a special way of grabbing the ink, which is just, you know, perfect for things like uh, etchings and woodcuts. And uh, it gave Rembrandt he also had a bit of talent, but it gave him an edge in art that he could do these these fine lines and this fine draftsmanship because he had this quality Japanese paper that nobody else was using. All right. Well, now let's get to Luther and the and the Protestant Reformation. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is a, this is an example of what I'm talking about when I say that that inventions come along when they're needed. Movable type printing was invented in China. Centuries before Gutenberg, it was invented in China because of uh, Buddhism. Devout Jews read these texts over and over again, and devout Muslims memorize the Quran word for word. Devout Buddhists copy texts. They, co they copy sutras, teachings of Buddha. And if you make a copy, if you make a copy of a sutra, that earns you a blessing. I think how many blessings you can get if you have a printing press. Right. But it never really took off there because they had too many characters. You know, right. not, not really a great language for movable type. Right. But in, in Europe, in Germany, there were tremendous political upheavals going on, chiefly the Protestant Reformation. And, you know, if you remember Martin Luther writing these tracts and pinning them on doors. And he wanted to do them on a lot of doors. And uh, he couldn't handwrite enough. And also pamphlets and books and, you know, a, a lot of writing came out of the Protestant Reformation. And so it's not a coincidence that the, that Germany, the time and place of the Reformation, is where movable type printing was uh, invented and remained the mainstay of political movements. When do the Americans get a paper mill? I mean, do they, they, they don't... There's an enormous amount of... I've been reading about the life of Alexander Hamilton, and it's like other of the founders. They produce voluminous journalism. Yeah, lar largely on English paper. <laughs> yeah. But, um, uh, but, I mean, it, without paper, without uh, printing, you can't really imagine the... American Revolution taking place. Yeah, I mean, there was the growth of newspapers, and newspapers became particularly active because of the Stamp Act. The Stamp Act was basically a tax measure against paper. Anything on paper was taxed. So newspapers, that's when newspapers turned to the revolution and against the British. So you have all these newspapers putting out all of this revolutionary stuff, and then there were you know, what they call broadsides, these one-page declarations. And then there were the, the pamphlets, the Thomas Paine 
He was one of the leading pamphleteers. And, and, and then there were books. So it was just a huge amount of writing. And, you know, they had the printing presses, but they didn't have the paper mills, which isn't unusual, actually. Historically, Holland, England, both, you know, were printing long before they were making paper because it's actually much easier to print than to make paper. Some people make it better than others. I mean, is there a difference in quality between French paper, Dutch paper, Japanese paper? Yeah, and individual paper? makers. That's, yeah. that's why way back in the 13th century, the Italians invented the watermark so that different paper makers could, could brand themselves. You like this paper, you know what paper it is because it, it has the watermark. Okay. And a watermark is just a, you take a piece of wire on that screen and you bend it into some sort of a design and it shows up on the paper. All right. Well, let, let, let's get to the 19th century and the now we get the steam press and in, in enormous volume. I mean, works of Charles. Wait, can, I, can I just go back and finish something about please, the Please, please. I want yeah. you, to, I want you yeah. to wander around whatever you, yeah. in any way you want to go. Um you know, so they're printing all these broadsides and things, and 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 the, the, the uh, now we're back in the 18th in, century, in the American Revolution. Yeah, and then they do the Declaration of Independence. Now, obviously, they thought the Declaration of Independence was really important and should be should endure, and so there was this idea. It's still around this idea that if something is really important and should endure, you don't do it on paper, you do it on parchment. So they did the Declaration of Independence, four copies on parchment. But then they thought, you know, we want everybody to read this and see this. So they also did paper broadsides. The paper that the Declaration of Independence was printed on was British paper. Yeah. Actually, it's worse than that. And, you know, the, the irony is that it was a principle of the American Revolution to boycott British goods. This paper was made by the Dutch for the British to sell in the American colonies. And so the Dutch, to please their client, the British, made the paper with a watermark of the British royal seal. So all these revolutionary documents are being done with the British royal seal in the watermark. The Federalist Papers have the British royal seal in the. In the uh, that's lovely. That's lovely. Okay, take us really through the 19th century to to where we are now. You know, paper was starting with the Arabs. I mean, the idea was invented with the Chinese. The, the Chinese made some paper out of cloth. The Arabs made all their paper out of cloth, and then the Europeans did because the Europeans learned from the Arabs and the Americans did, and all paper was made from rags, which put a tremendous demand on rags. Uh, during the American Revolution, there were all these things about, in articles and papers and things about how it was your patriotic duty to save rags. And I find it interesting that they didn't go into details. Like People seemed to know what kind of rags were good for paper. They didn't have to tell them. Forget the wool, save the cotton. People knew. Yeah. And literacy kept expanding. Printing improved to satisfy the demand and for reading material. A machine was developed for making paper, actually by a Frenchman named Robert, which was a mechanical 
imitation of handmade paper, basically. It, it, it was handmade paper. You pour the, 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 the pulp and water over the screen. You shake the screen. And with this machine, it used the basic idea of the Industrial Revolution, the conveyor belt and the steam-powered engine. And it moved this conveyor belt that was a screen, and it shook it sideways as it went, and it created a continuous roll of paper. So this greatly increase the ability to produce paper. But the problem was getting enough rags, you know, and it, it was becoming desperate. The U.S. imported lots of rags from Italy. Some countries banned the export of rags because they didn't want competing paper nations to get their rags. And rags were becoming really in demand. Actually, the paper that my book is printed on, which is very nice paper, printed by a a mill in Pennsylvania in Gladfellers. And they started in 1863. They bought a mill from somebody else at a going out of business bargain price. The reason the old mill was going out of business in 1863 was that they had taken these wagons and gone onto the battlefield in Gettysburg and stripped the dead of their uniforms and bandages to make paper, which made their paper kind of unpopular. But they were <laughs> desperate for rags. And actually, there were, there were cases of this in Europe during the Napoleonic War, paper makers going out of the battlefield. And, you know, it was, it was just getting to the point where they had to come up with something besides rags. And lots of things were, were talked about. The British made some paper. The British still make some paper from a kind of grass that grows in North Africa called Esparta. And... You know, lot, there, were, there were lots of books written, a lot of discussions. Of what else can we make paper? And there was an 18th century scientist, Rémur, who wrote this book that uh, nobody seemed to notice about wasps. And he had observed that, that wasps chew up wood and make pulp and build their nests out of paper. <laughs> but... You know, this was this is like a, almost a century before anybody made paper out of wood, but eventually uh, that idea caught on, and once they made started making paper out of wood in the second half of the nineteenth century, the amount of paper that could be provided seemed limitless. Of course, wasn't limitless because they were stripping virgin forests and. Uh, and that was a huge issue for a long time. And by the way, really isn't much of an issue now, in spite of the fact that people keep telling you not to use paper to save trees. Paper companies are not laying waste to forest anymore. They have sustainable farms. You know, when you get this thing in the mail saying, pay your bill electronically to save a tree, <clears throat> you're not really saving a tree. You're saving them a stamp. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... In the, in the 19th century, they really were laying waste to forests in North America, and U.S. and Canada. Now, you, let's go back to the beginning where you say the rumor that paper is dying. But that's not a rumor we can credit, right? I mean, yes, we have the computer, we have the electronics, we have the, the Internet, the snapshot, I mean, the Snapchat and the Twitter. But again, we still have a thriving book business. Yeah, it's, you know, it's go, go back to this idea that technology creates alternatives. So there are certain things that electronics is good for and certain things that, that paper is good for. First of all, if you want to talk about non-communication paper, it's booming because of online shopping has made 
paper packaging material, a huge business. But also, you know, books are holding their own and, uh, you know, even stationery is doing okay. Although I, I find it interesting that, you know, if you want really good stationery, you get 100% rag, the kind of paper that they made before they started making them out of trees, because it was much better paper, you know, and you go back and you look at books, like I've seen the the books of the 1500s, uh, Aldous Minutius in uh, Venice. These books, pages are completely white, no spotting, no discoloration, completely flat. You know, this paper was so superior to the paper we use now. You know, we're using paper and we're going to continue to use paper. And uh, did you ever see that movie about Edward Snowden? Uh, no. Well, there's this movie about uh, Snowden and the journalist that worked with him to yeah. break the story, and they're 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 meeting in these clandestine rooms, and they're worried about bugging. So rather than talking to each other, they're sending messages back and forth on their highly encrypted computers. And and by the end of the movie, they're not trusting the encryption. So what are they doing? They're writing notes on paper, passing them back and forth, and then burning them. And, you know, in, in this age of hacking, you know, it turns out, I haven't heard people talk about this much, but I think they're going to. It's the most secure communication. Uh, and in fact, an encryptor told me that when, when they work out complicated encryptions, they do it all on paper. So, you know, paper, uh, paper still has lots of uses. I like the, the note that the... The encryptions these days are being done on paper. Yeah. I, I like that as a, as a way but of— But there's, uh, there's a lot of things. You know, um, uh, Mitch Kapoor, who was one of the— I remember, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, a pioneer in software. And, and he said to me, you know, he said, said, paper will at least be around until somebody comes up with a computer that you can crumple up and throw away or fold and put in your pocket. That's a happy thought. <laughs> on, on that thought, uh, Mark Kurlansky, thank you very much for talking with us today about— paper, paging through history. It's a wonderful book. Thank you. Pleasure talking to you, Lewis. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.